Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Amos 5 in your Bibles. We will try to get all the way through Amos 5 tonight. We may or we may not. My chief concern in all of these weeks and months of teaching through the Old Testament prophets is that at some point I'm going to sound redundant if I don't already sound redundant. My fear is that people will begin to tune out and say, oh, that again, we've already heard this. And rather than tuning out or rather than uh, thinking, well, this is just redundant and I already know this, so I don't really need to pay attention, my hope is that your response will be to recognize that the reason for the redundancy is that the Old Testament prophets really genuinely are this redundant. They are really genuinely all saying the same thing. How many times have you heard me say the Bible tells one story? And sometimes you'll hear me use the phrase, I'll say the prophets all speak with one voice. And what I mean by that is they all say the same thing. And so tonight in Amos 5, we're going to hear familiar themes again. And we're going to compare them to some other places in the Old Testament where those themes come up. But I don't want you to ever reach the point where you tune out or where you say, yeah, I got it. I get it, Jim. Can we please move on? Because our goal has been to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through these books of the Old Testament. But as your familiarity grows with how the Old Testament works and what the historical moments and epochs are, hopefully you'll understand that there is an enormous scheme to human history and that God is in absolute and sovereign control of human history and the fact that there is repetition to it is just proof and evidence yet again that God has said over and over the same things the same prophecies the same ideas he has laid out the same requirements he has made the same promises over and over again and so you would think at some point that we as Bible-believing Christians would just lay down our fight and say, okay, I get it, this is what the Bible actually says. And yet so much of modern Christianity ignores and denies what the Old Testament prophets have to say. So there will be some repetition tonight, but I think it's good, and it's certainly on purpose. God keeps saying the same thing over and over. Hear this word which I take up for you, the NASB says, as a dirge. Some of your translations will say, as a lament. This is bad news. This is yet another prophecy from Amos to Israel during his very short prophetic career. And yet again, it's bad news for Israel. And if we only read the bad news parts of Old Testament prophecy then I suppose we could 
conclude, as many of our covenantal amillennial brethren do, they conclude that God is just done with Israel, just finished with Israel. Israel broke the law of God. They chased after their foreign gods, and therefore God is just finished with them. And certainly passages like this could lead you to believe that. For instance, I will take up this dirge against you, O house of Israel. And then he describes Israel as the virgin Israel. This is real important language. This is in contrast to how the prophets speak of Israel in her rebellion against God and how often the prophets say that it makes Israel like an unfaithful wife. Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute, and the prostitute, Gomer, becomes a type of Israel, chasing after her foreign gods. At one time, when God chose Israel and said, you're mine, you're uniquely mine, you're only mine, you have no relationship with anybody else, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth, God likened her to a virgin. But she has lost her virginity. She has chased after her foreign gods. She has gone off into her adulteries and into her whoredoms. And as a consequence, verse 2 says, she has fallen, she will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lays neglected on her land, and there's no one to raise her up. Isn't that terrible sounding? If you just took that passage out of context and decided to preach a message from just that text then you could come to the conclusion, well, then God's just done with Israel. Because she had the opportunity to be a faithful wife. She erred in her faithfulness. She chased after foreign gods. She committed her adulteries and her whoredoms. And therefore, she's not going to rise again. And she is neglected in her land. And there is no one to help her, no one to raise her up. And that is certainly the state of Israel at the time that Amos is prophesying to her. But is that the end? Is that the end of the story? Well, the answer is no, because this same language of the virgin of Israel is picked up later by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Just as the Babylonian captivity is coming up and as it's first happening, Jeremiah is prophesying primarily to the southern kingdom, but also to the northern tribes. Turn to Jeremiah 30 for a moment. Because Jeremiah, I think, continues this thought that Amos began. Jeremiah <clears throat> chapter 30. And we're going to read a big chunk of this. Because I operate on the assumption that there's nothing more fun than listening to Jim read. Jeremiah 30, let's just start right at verse 1. Because the language is going to come up again of the virgin of Israel. What is God going to do about Israel who has indeed rebelled against him? Who has indeed committed her whoredoms and her adulteries? What about it? No one can help her. She lays abandoned in her land and nobody can help her. That's absolutely true. That is her condition. So if she is going to be helped, it has to be God that helps her. And certainly that is every bit the theology that we adhere to and that we believe that the sinner left to himself is completely depraved and completely abandoned and there is no help for them. The only help that they could possibly have is if God helps them. And that is the theology that Jeremiah is now going to advance. Jeremiah 30, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all these words which I have spoken to you in a book. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah. Now as he's writing this, Israel has already gone into the Assyrian captivity. The Babylonian captivity is beginning. And here comes Jeremiah on the scene saying, don't worry, I'm going to restore you. And yet the restoration of the northern kingdoms has not occurred even to this very day. There are some who would argue that 1948, the reestablishment of national Israel, Jews returning to that land, is at least a precursor of the southern kingdom coming back to the land. But it's not sufficient to fulfill what we're about to read. God is going to restore all 12 tribes back to the land of Canaan, which he gave to Abraham in perpetuity, as the land that he would inherit. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave their forefathers, and they shall possess it. And of course, he's saying this while they're out of their land. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Verse 5, for thus says the Lord, I've heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Okay, this helps us. How is God going to restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel? Well, first, there's going to be this time, this time of distress, this time that on Sunday mornings we've been talking about. Jesus picks it up in Matthew 24, a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. Here, Jeremiah calls it specifically the time of Jacob's trouble because the time of tribulation, the time of great trouble on the planet, is for the purpose of refining and restoring Israel. And if you miss that, you're never going to get your eschatology strictly biblical. As long as you think that the time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again, the great tribulation, the day of the Lord stuff at the end, if you think that's solely and strictly about the church, you're never going to understand the full biblical eschatology. But he will be saved from it. Verse 8. And it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. If you want to know if this has happened yet, do you see David the king ruling over Judah and Israel anywhere on the planet yet? No, yes. no. so this hasn't occurred yet, but it's going to. And fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord. And do not be dismayed, O Israel. Notice the way that Jeremiah calls him Jacob and then calls him Israel. Again, a reminder of who he was when God dealt with him originally. Who are you? You are the heel catcher. You are the supplanter. There is nothing in you that would attract God. You are, in fact, a sinner. But it is God who changed his name to Israel. And so 
speaking through Jeremiah, he starts by calling him Jacob and then turns the name to Israel again. For behold, I will save you from afar. Why? Because they're scattered. They're scattered out into the nations. We read all that stuff last week and talking about the day of the Lord and this past Sunday and the regathering of Israel. So I'm going to save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return and shall be quiet and at ease and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely. But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So what's the purpose of this time of trouble such as never was, this time of Jacob's trouble? It's for the purpose of chastening and correcting Israel, not destroying Israel. Because his ultimate purpose is the restoration of Israel back into the land that he promised to their forefathers. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy and with the punishment of a cruel one because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. This is very similar to what we just read out of Amos that the virgin of Israel is left in the land and there's no one to help. Same description here. That God says, I'm going to wound you by the hands of other armies and I'm going to put you in this position where your wound is so serious there is no cure unless God cures you. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take the intervention of God. The same way it was with Tom. That his sin was incurable. It was going to kill him. It was a deadly disease. It was going to put him in hell forever. And there was nothing Alex could do to help Tom. There was no human intervention. Even if we all collectively got together, there was no human intervention that could help Tom. It was going to take God interceding in order for Tom to be saved. Same thing here with Israel. Israel's wound is so serious that there's nothing you can do about it. The wound is incurable. The injury is serious. It's going to take God's intervention. That's quite a statement about God's sovereignty, that he can say, I wounded you with the wound of an enemy. That just kind of blows free will to things. It does, absolutely. But notice it's in the context of, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to put you back in your land. But I'm going to correct you because your wound is so serious. All your lovers have forgotten you, says verse 14. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. And those who plunder you shall be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, saying it is Zion and no one cares for her. What is it that we read in Amos? 
She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin of Israel. She lies neglected on her land, and there is none to raise her up. Same description. I will restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying it's Zion, and no one cares for her. But the fact that she belongs to God, God is not going to allow the nations to mock Israel ultimately because she is God's. And when they say, well, it's Zion and no one cares for her, God is going to intervene and say, I care for her. And far too much of the church, I'm afraid to say, continues to say, it's Zion and no one cares for her. (laughs) Thus says the Lord, verse 18, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling place. And the city shall be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace shall stand in its rightful place, and from them shall proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who make merry, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be diminished, and I will also honor them, and they shall not be insignificant. Their children also shall be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors, and their leaders shall be one of them. And their ruler shall come forth out of their midst. And I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. He's talking about Christ there. I'm going to rule them through Christ, the son of David, who's going to sit on David's throne and rule from Jerusalem. Their ruler is going to come forth from the midst of them. They're not going to be ruled over by foreign kings or foreign territories anymore. And I'll bring him near, because who would dare to just approach me. Verse 22, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the tempest of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest. It will burst on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed, until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this as we continue through Amos chapter 5. As you already know from last week's teaching, he's going to go exactly here. After recognizing that Israel has rebelled so seriously against God, the only way that they're going to be saved, the only way they're going to be redeemed, is if God intervenes and redeems them. But the way that he does it is through punishing them and bringing about what Amos is going to identify as the day of the Lord. Jeremiah identifies it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Here he calls it wrath. Wrath has gone forth, a sweeping tempest, the fierce anger of the Lord. And it won't turn back until he has performed it, until he has accomplished it. And that is the intent of his heart. And in the latter days, you'll understand this. So even as Jeremiah was saying it, he recognized that they weren't going to get it until these things were all accomplished, until they actually happened, and they're going to happen in the latter days. Still hasn't happened. We're still waiting for it. I said all that to get to chapter 31. Chapter 31.3 does include one of my absolute favorite Old Testament verses, and I quote it often as a demonstration of the type of love that God has for his people. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. The reason that God draws people to himself is because those are the people he has ever loved, but contextually that verse belongs to Israel. Chapter 31, verse 1, at that time, declares the Lord, when I do all that at the time of the end, at that time, 
When I will be their God, they will be my people. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it came to find its rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Okay, so what is that drawing really about? Because we put it into the theological context of God's drawing people to salvation, God drawing people to himself. But contextually, it's about the drawing of Israel from all the places where God has scattered them and bringing them back to their land. And God being their God, they are his people. David is going to rule over them. Christ is going to be their king, ruling from Jerusalem. And why is God drawing Israel back to himself, back to their land, back to everything he promised the forefathers? Well, because he has loved them with this everlasting love. And therefore, out of loving kindness, despite how they've been, despite how they've acted, despite their rebellion against him, nevertheless, because of his loving kindness, he's going to draw them back He's going to be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Verse 3, the Lord has appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you. This is all part of that drawing. I'll draw you, I'll build you, and you shall be rebuilt. What's the next phrase? O virgin of Israel. Okay, so this is why we're here in Jeremiah. When we were in Amos 5, he said, Hear this word that I take up against you as a dirge, as a lament, O house of Israel. She has fallen. She will not rise again, the virgin of Israel. She lies neglected on her land, and there is no one to raise her up. But Jeremiah says, while she's in that condition, that God, because of his loving kindness, is going to restore Israel back to their land, going to give them a king. They are going to be his people. He is going to be their God. And again, he refers to them as the virgin of Israel. The wound is terrible. The wound is incurable. The rebellion has no cure from within or without. It has to be God interceding on their behalf. And the result of God's intercession on their behalf is that he again considers them the virgin that he was betrothed to to start with. He's going to forgive them for chasing their foreign gods, forgive them for all their adulteries and their harlotries, and he's going to again look on them as the virgin of Israel. Don't you like the way that language works? I like a God like that because I have plenty of black spots against my name. I have plenty of rebellions in my life. I am glad to know that had he left me to myself, I would be just completely and utterly lost, but he intervened on my behalf, and therefore he looks on me as perfected forever. And by the way, I don't think that I can claim those kind of biblical promises for myself and deny them to Israel when God says it to Israel over and over and over again. Again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and you will go forth in the streets of the merrymakers. And again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy them. For there shall be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim shall call out and say, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness 
for Jacob. Oh, a minute ago, it was Jacob who was the rebellion, who was the problem, who was the, the fallen virgin that nobody could help. Now he's saying the day is going to come when people are singing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations and proclaim and give praise and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth. Does this sound familiar? Here's that repetition again. How often do we keep seeing the prophets saying the same thing? The same God that scattered them is the same God that's going to regather them, restore them again back to their land. I'm going to bring them out of the north country, and I will gather them from the remotest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame and the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great company, and they shall return here. With weeping shall they come, and by supplication I will lead them, and I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather Israel. And keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they shall come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. And they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and over the wine and over the oil and over the young of the flock and over the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall never languish again. Look at verse 13. And then the virgin shall rejoice in dance and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Okay, so how is he going to accomplish this? How is he going to redeem Israel? That's the language. The language of redemption shows up. It's not just redeeming them out of the places that they were and bringing them back, but it's bringing them back in such a way that they weep, they mourn, they're so happy by the streams of water. The Zechariah language, they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. How is he going to accomplish that? Well, he can't accomplish it by taking them back to Mount Sinai. They've already broken that law. And this is where so much of modern theology just gets it plain flat wrong, is that they say, well, see, they broke the law, and since that was the covenant that they had with God, that's why God is done with them. That's why God has cast them off permanently, and that's why the promises that were made to them now belong to the church, is because God is done with national Israel because they broke his law. Right. So he doesn't take them back to the law in order to reestablish them. Jeremiah 31, you ought to be familiar with, is the recitation of the new covenant. God is going to make a new covenant, starting in chapter 31, verse 27. Here's how he's going to accomplish it. Well, actually, look at verse 21. Set up for yourself road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway, the way by which you went. You're going to return, O virgin of Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. 
a woman will encompass a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities. When I restore their fortunes, they'll say, the Lord God bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities will dwell in it together, the farmer and they who go about with flocks. For I will satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone that languishes. And at this I awoke and I looked up from my sleep and it was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Verse 27, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I watched over them to pluck them up and to break them down and to overthrow and to destroy and to bring disaster in that same way, I will watch over them to build them and to plant them declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for their own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. So the language of virgin and the language of husband permeates this language of new covenant. Amos says that she's a fallen, uh, faithless virgin that will never get up again. And her wound is serious and there is no cure for it. And Jeremiah says that it's going to take God's intervention to raise her up again. And God is going to be a husband to her again and she's going to be his virgin again. How? Not by Sinai. Because that's the covenant that he made with them when he took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. That covenant they broke. So you can't go back to that covenant. It's going to take a different covenant, a new covenant. Yes, sir? Um, when he talks about divorcing Israel... Is that connected to the old covenant, you think, there? Mm -hmm. Yes, but also understand what the word divorce means. It, it means a putting away. You put your wife away. You put her out. And so it's a taking back in. These days, because we have all the legal ramifications of court and divorce and taxes and everything else, divorce is a very different legal entity than it was back here. The language of putting away in the Old Testament simply means to put that woman out of your house, give her a bill of divorcement, I'm done with you, we're not married anymore, go out. And that's what God did with Israel. Get out of the land, get out of my worship, I'm not going to take your, your sacrifices anymore, you're a divorced woman, you're out now. But he can take her back, he can redeem her back. And because he's God, not only does he take her back, he makes her a virgin again, he considers her to be virginal in the relationship, which is a Astounding is my point. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach again every man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So how does that fit with the covenantal amillennial view that says that because they broke the law of God, God is done with them? What the new covenant says is God's going to forgive them, God's going to restore them, and God is going to forgive them for their iniquity and all their sin. So then you're right back to, well, then Israel is a literal entity, a genuine people group, a people group that God has been tracing and tracking through all these years, and he knows where they are, and he has purposefully scattered them out of their land, and they and they alone have the promise that God is going to restore them and reestablish them and place them back in their land, and he's going to do it by a brand new thing that he's going to do in the earth, a new covenant with these people who rebelled against him. That's what the prophets say. By the way, Hebrews chapter 8, the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament that you find in the New Testament is the recitation of the New Covenant written by a Hebrew to a Hebrew audience. He reminds them of this promise. And he quotes it verbatim that it is a new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So who does the new covenant belong to? Israel and Judah. And yet there are so many Christians who will say, we are saved by the new covenant. And I agree. We're certainly not saved by the law. We are brought into the covenant of grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. And that is a result of the new covenant, not the old. But then far too many people think, well, now because the church is under the new covenant, that satisfies the new covenant. So Israel doesn't have to have it. And yet, it's Israel and Judah exclusively who are promised it in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It is promised to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that specific people group. I refuse to deny that. Even if you somehow think this is just the Gentile church, I used to struggle with, when, when is this going to be that we don't teach anymore? Right. I got no answer. I have very frequently pointed that out, that Paul writing to the Ephesians says that God gives gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And if the new covenant was in full fruition within the church, then we wouldn't need teachers because everybody would know him from the least to the greatest. So there's still a difference there. The new covenant has not come to its totality, to its ultimate fruition yet. I agree that we Christians who are brought to God through faith in Christ, the only covenant that we could be having any part of has to be the new covenant. There's no other covenant that satisfies Gentiles being brought to God through Christ. But I certainly don't say the new covenant has come to its fruition because we're still teaching. We're still telling people, know the Lord. And Israel and Judah have not yet have the benefit of the new covenant. They're not in their land yet. They don't have David's greater son ruling over them yet. The new covenant has not yet come to its completion. Right? right. Would we agree with that? Right. Okay. 
And by the way, that's why it's so, so very significant. I didn't mean to get into all this New Covenant stuff tonight necessarily, but this is why it's so, so important to remember that at the Last Supper, when Jesus said, with longing, I have longed to have this Passover with you, that when he gave them the cup with the blood in it, he said, this is the cup of the, of the New Covenant. He was establishing the New Covenant in a room with Jews. And saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. And so, lest anybody misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm certainly not saying there are two ways of salvation, one for the church and one for Israel. All salvation is always through Christ. But to say that salvation to the church through Christ circumvents salvation for Israel through Christ is just wrong. Sub-biblical, incorrect anti-theological, and wrong. All right, so let's finish up here. Verse 35, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and who gives the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. This is what he says. If this fixed order sun, moon, stars, light, waves, if that ever departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, there you go. You don't need a more clear theological statement than that. As long as there's sun, moon, stars, as long as the waves keep rolling, as long as the planet exists in the condition it's in, well, then Israel will always be a nation before God. Mm-hmm. Notice he does not say, well, then Israel will always exist in some spiritual sense in the church. He says Israel will always be a nation before me, a national group of ethnic people before me forever. Why? Well, because I've loved them with an everlasting love. I chose them back when I chose Abraham. Isaac, Jacob, and made them promises that I can't go back on because it was an unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham and that he then promised to Isaac and that he then promised to Jacob. So this all has to happen. Okay, now back to Amos after that big left turn. Hear this word which I take up to you as a lament. O house of Israel, she has fallen, she will not rise again, the virgin Israel. She lies neglected on her land, and there is none to help her. My point being, Jeremiah picks up right there and says, there's no one to help Israel. Her wound is incurable. And then God shows up and says, I'll fix it. And then calls her virgin of Israel again and then promises to restore her through a new covenant. Finally, verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left, and the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have ten left to the house of Israel. This is the, the dirge. This is the bad news. This is the lament. He is going to punish Israel. There's no question about the fact that he's going to punish Israel. The prophets all agree with that. But the purpose of the punishment, I'll say again, is not to destroy them. As Jeremiah said, and as all the prophets say, 
It's for the purpose of refining them. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, says verse 4, Seek me that you may live. Okay, so this is interesting. At a time when he is declaring national disaster, he still holds out the promise and the hope individually. Says, seek me, still come to me. Nationally, I'm going to destroy you, but still come to me, which certainly, because you have people like the prophets, Amos, you still have faithful people within Israel. The concept of the remnant within Israel permeates the Old Testament. So seek me that you may live, but do not resort to, and he names three places. Don't go to Bethel. There are two places in the north where they would worship. And uh, Dan, the northernmost part, and Bethel in the south became the two popular places they would go and worship. So he says, seek me, but don't go to Bethel, because that's where the worship of the foreign gods is. Don't go there. Don't go to Gilgal. That's the place where when they came across the Jordan and they landed there and they built the monument there, that would be a place that Israel would often gather in order to remember that God had delivered them into the land. And then he mentions a place, Beersheba, which is actually south of, the, of Jerusalem. And it's the place where the, the monument to the forefathers was. And so they would gather there to remember their forefathers and to worship God. He says, don't go to any of those places. Don't go to any of those monuments. Don't go back to those places of of physical worship. For Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come into trouble. Bethel, house of God. Hosea does this interesting thing where he refers to Bethel as Beth-Avon. And the word Avon means empty void. And so Bethel will become, the NASB says will become trouble. Terrible translation. What do your other translations have? Will come to nothing. He actually said Bethel becomes Beth-Avon. The house of God becomes the house of emptiness. And this is God speaking. Seek the Lord that you may live, says verse 6, lest he break forth like a Fire, O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. So now he's returning to a theme. This is the the primary theme of the book of Amos, which is the rich, the powerful, the well-to-do were constantly suppressing their brethren, suppressing the poor making trade out of the poor. They were willing to sell a child for a pair of sandals. They were constantly in their courts treating the wealthy. They were treating them well. And yet those who were poor, they were constantly suppressing them. And so this is a main theme here in Amos. And so the Lord says, Seek the Lord that you may live, lest he break forth on you like a fire, O house of Joseph. Interesting language. That's that whole northern tribe area where Ephraim is the primary tribe up there. He refers to them as house of Joseph, Ephraim being Joseph's son. And then it will consume you, so seek the Lord, for those who turn justice to wormwood. Wormwood is a word that means poison or rotten. In the book of Revelation, there's a a meteor that comes down out of the sky called Wormwood that kills a whole bunch of people. Somebody look up Proverbs 21.3 because this will help us in understanding the theme for the rest of this chapter. God is about to say, 
I'm no longer interested in your worship, which is why he said, don't go to Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba or don't even go to the house of God, Bethel, because it's a house of emptiness. I'm not even interested in your worship anymore because of your behavior. In other words, if you simply go through the religious exercise, he's going to say, I don't want your feasts. I don't want your animals. I don't want your peace offerings. And the reason is because you oppress your brethren. And I think this is a message that resonates to this very day. If all you're doing is going through the religious rigmarole, but you're not living the life, then you're still not genuinely in communion with God. God rejects rote exercises of religion. Israel thought, well, as long as I kill an animal, the modern equivalent would be, well, as long as I go to confession, as long as I show up at church, as long as I do some religious stuff, then I'm probably fine with God. But what's really going to become apparent here is God isn't interested in all that if your life doesn't reflect the profession. You can't just satisfy God by going through the rote behavior. Jesus talked about things like that when he said, you know, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees who go through their vain repetition because they think they'll be heard for their much speaking. That's just rote behavior. And he says, that, that doesn't satisfy God. That does nothing for anybody. So seek the Lord that you may live, lest he break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it consume with none to quench it for Bethel, for those who turn justice into wormwood. And cast righteousness down to the earth. What does Proverbs 21.3 say? To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You get that idea? To do right, to be just, to exercise righteousness among your brethren, especially if you have any power at all, is more important than bringing him sacrifices. And of course, that's a theme that even David picks up and talks about. So they cast righteousness down to the earth. In other words, they suppress righteousness. If that sounds familiar, Paul picks that up thematically in the book of Romans. Is it in Romans 2 where he talks about they suppress righteousness? They hold down righteousness. This is part of the sinfulness of human beings is that they prefer their ego. They prefer self-aggrandizement over doing what is right. And what is right is taking care of your brethren, not making merchandise of your brethren. Verse 8, at this point, Amos turns to God's absolute sovereignty, kind of like you said a few minutes ago, Alex. And I think the reason he does it, this is going to go back to a conversation that Tom and I had a long time ago. One of the first really significant theologically adept things I ever heard Tom say. Now you're nervous, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. This goes back 20 years. We were talking one time about God's ability to make the rules. Sounding familiar yet? Okay, good. And we were talking about God's authority to make the rules. And Tom said, it doesn't matter if you have the authority unless you have the power. See, I can make rules. I can implement any rule I want. I, I can just start making the Jennifer rules, you know. 
Whenever Jennifer walks through the door here, she has to dance a jig. Now, the reason that it doesn't matter that I make the Jennifer rules is that even as I said it, Jennifer shook her head. And the reason she shook her head is because she knows I don't have the power to enforce that. I might say it. I might decide this is how it's going to work. But it doesn't matter unless I can actually enforce it. Now, now here is God saying, come back to me. Pay attention to me. Pay attention to what I've said. Pay attention to my rules, my laws. Pay attention to the fact that I have said, don't worship any other gods. And then immediately Amos leaps right to, and God is absolutely in control of everything. Not only does he have the authority to make the rules, he has the power to make the rules. And he can enforce his rules. Because you either do it his way or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph. And he will consume with none to quench in Bethel. He has that kind of power. He has that kind of authority. But it's far more than just that. He's in charge of the Pleiades and Orion, according to verse 8. Well, I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that it also comes from the book of Job. And the book of Job is arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there. Turn to Job 38 for a second. Because Job 38 is God's defense of his absolute sovereignty. Turn to Job 38. You know that I frequently go to the book of Job because, well, I love the book of Job. And because it is uh, such instructive theology, considering how ancient it is, that the arguably most ancient book in the Old Testament is full of God's absolute sovereignty. And so everything I believe about God's absolute sovereignty is theology that has been around ever since men started writing about God. So in chapter 38... God speaks to Job. The Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? That's just so frightening. Because Job has finally reached the point where his friends have convinced him that you know, he keeps maintaining his integrity. They keep saying, all these things befell you because you must have done something. Just admit what you did. And he keeps saying, I didn't do this. And finally, he reaches the point where he says, if God was here right now, I'd ask him a few questions and he'd answer me. So God shows up and starts with, you know nothing. <laughs> and who is this that darkens my counsel? Who is this that comes into my presence with no knowledge? Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Gird your loins like a man, and I'll ask you, and you instruct me. So a minute ago, it was like, you know, if God was here, I'd ask him a few things. And then he goes, okay, I'm here. How about I ask you some things? He starts right out with, where were you when I did everything? It's a perfect question. God starts with, I'm in charge of everything, and you're who again? And remember, this is the same God who started out at the beginning of the book saying to Satan, have you considered Job? He's upright. He eschews evil. I mean, God knows who Job is and picked him out on purpose and then let Satan have his way with him. And yet, when Job goes to God in complaint, God goes, and who are you? <laughs> 
absolute sovereignty. I will ask you, and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were the bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you in all that? Notice, by the way, God just said, when I made everything, all my angels shouted for joy. They like what I do. Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and I placed boundaries on it and I set a bolt and doors and I said, thus far will you come and no further and here shall your proud waves stop. God said, the fact that there's land and sea is because I decided how much land and how much sea and I'm the one that holds the sea back. Notice, by the way, that he also just said that he's in charge of the seas and the waves rolling. And in the new covenant, he said, as long as that happens, Israel continues to be a nation. So Israel continues to be a nation as long as God keeps the creation going. Just thought I'd point that out. Sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Well, have you, Thad? Well, then you're not God. That it might take hold of the ends of the earth? And that the wicked would be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. And from the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or have you ever walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may walk to it in its territory? That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Flat sarcasm from God. You know, you've been around as long as I have. You've been around forever. You should be able to answer these questions. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you're what? You're mortal? Oh, you weren't there? Oh, you don't know any of this? Now, what are you doing talking back to me? That's the point. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Verse 22. Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress? For the day of war and battle? Where is the way that the light is divided or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or the way for the thunderbolt? To bring the rain on the land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste in the desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout. Does the rain have a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb came the ice and the frost of heaven? Who was given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Verse 31. Can you bind the chains 
of the Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with the satellites, with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix the rules over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they would go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the innermost being? Or who has given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair? Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Okay, so this is God's defense of his own sovereignty, and it just keeps going. And God says, I'm absolutely in charge of absolutely everything. And in the midst of all that, he says that he's in charge of the constellations. And the key phrase here in verse 32 is, I'm in charge of the constellations in their seasons. And he mentions in particular the Pleiades and Orion. And Amos picks that up, which is why I went back and did all the work of digging this out. What does that mean, that he made the Pleiades and Orion? It was important to Job. And then Amos picked it up, and I'm willing to believe that he picked it up from Job. Part of God's absolute sovereign control is that he's in charge of the constellations in their season, both the Pleiades and Orion. Well, it turns out that in the early spring, which is when you know it's going to start getting warm again, and you know that it's time to plant again, that's the time when you see the Pleiades just before dawn. While it's dark and just about to become light, you see the Pleiades in the sky, you know spring is coming. And just the opposite is true in the fall, just after the sun has gone down, that's when you see Orion in the sky. So this is God saying, I'm in charge of the seasons, and I'm so in charge of the seasons that I have actually put star clusters in the sky so that you, by reading the star clusters in the morning and in the evening, know when it's time to plant and when it's time to harvest. I not only bring the rain so that you'll have harvest, I not only break up the clods of dry earth by bringing water out of the sky, but I also am in charge of the whole way that the universe is structured so that you can look up at the vastness of the sky and see my handiwork in letting you know when it's spring and when it's fall. I'm in that kind of charge. So be careful, because I'll bring fire on you. Because I not only make the rules, I have the power. You got that? Yes, sir. All right, we're going to put a pin in it right there. That's where we'll pick up next week, because I know you're probably concerned that I was going to try to make the whole chapter. But I thought, no, I'll take my time and actually fill in these big blanks, because I think it's worth it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it helps us to understand where Amos was coming from and what some of his influences were. Did you enjoy that? Yes, sir. Did you learn anything? Yes, sir. When you walk out of here and you look up, that's God. That's just God going, I did all that. By the way, Paul picks that up and says that all humankind is guilty. All mankind is guilty before God. Nobody can say, I didn't know, because what can be known of God is demonstrated in the heavens. When you walk out and you see the universe, if you deny God after that, you can't say, nobody told me. Walk out, look up. Questions? All right, then, good. We're done. 
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.